Have you ever been plunged under the surface of your conscious life and found yourself all at sea? Welcome to the Anxious Poets podcast with Adrian Scott, the Anxious Poet. Reworking the territory of the past, exposing that the presence in loss is the impudent sprouting of a new life. There is a certain kind of vow no one can make for you. It is the vow of vulnerability. Poetry, anxiety and vulnerability. This is the Anxious Poets Podcast. Welcome to the Anxious Poets Christmas Podcast. I'm Adrian Scott, I am the Anxious Poet. And this day, the winter solstice, the shortest day of the year, is traditionally, certainly for me, a time of anxiety when the nights are very dark, it's cold. It often would really trigger my anxiety, not so much so far this year. Um, I think partly because I've learned to accommodate the darkness and to find a strange kind of solace in it, as I may have talked about on previous Advent and Christmas podcasts. In the Northern Hemisphere, in the myths and legends and stories that we inherit, the winter solstice was a very auspicious time. It was a time as on one of these podcasts I played um, the Holly King song by Kate Rusby and that imagines the the realm and reign of the Oak King of Summer is usurped and taken over by the Holly King and Queen and the Holly Queen comes breathing frost across the land and that's what we've had in the last few days it's warmed up today but Goodness me, if we had a cold snap, freezing rain and snow and ice uh, just at this terribly difficult time of year this year with um, the cost of living crisis and we've been trying to keep the heating off as much as possible and wearing thick jumpers. I'm sitting in a thick jumper now uh, and for some people it's much worse than it is for us. So that's that's the first thing I want to recognise is that this is a difficult, dark time of the year. But but perhaps in this podcast we can find some of that Kindle light that will be of solace to us all. At this time of year in Sheffield, there are carols sung all over the city in pubs. Uh, they're traditional carols. They're not to the same tunes as some of the ones that people sing in church. And the pubs are full of men and women, big male voices singing, and uh, you can't get to the bar. Uh, it's it's fantastic. Um, it's a great tradition. Uh, it goes way back, I think. And um, we're going to one at the Horns in High Bradfield, near where we live, and there's going to be a silver band. Uh, there's something about silver bands that just make me cry. It feels like the whole wealth uh, 
and richness of the history of this area is is contained somehow in that sound. Colliery bands, steelworks bands, these were were places where people would gather and make music. Um, and I want you to listen to a piece of music. It's called Gresford, the Miner's Hymn. Not necessarily a Christmas tune, but it was written in the 30s after a mining disaster at a pit in Gresford by a guy called Robert Saint. And it is, I would argue, one of the most beautiful pieces of music I have ever heard. Um, and it'll set the scene for, for the things that I would like to have a conversation with you about um, and delve into in this podcast. So here's Gresford, the Miner's Hymn.
I find that incredibly moving. It, it touches something deep in me. Um, I don't really know why in some ways, but it, it definitely does. I find Christmas as I've got older, I'm 61 now, is one of those moments in time that takes you back to all the previous Christmases, a bit like Scrooge. The, the ghost of Christmas past visits you. And you, you you start thinking of all the things that have happened on previous Christmas days. You know, I, I start going back to when my kids were smaller, uh, acting out, being Father Christmas, all of that magical stuff that you do with your children. And then going back further to my own childhood, um, my mother was an absolute master of of this time of year, mistress of this time of year. She was... She was amazing. Um, I was an only child, and I think, you know, I was surrounded by adults at Christmas. There was my Auntie Doll, and my Auntie Julie, and my Uncle Rod, uh, and later on my Uncle Neil. Um, people that I loved, people that loved me, and um, but I was the child. But I had I had Christmas lavished on me, I suppose you could say, and my mum would really go to town from. You know, she'd put a, a crisp white pillowcase and a lovely school sock on my bed on Christmas Eve and then they'd be packed full. I never realised that what she was actually doing, she had two um, and she'd have it all ready. And, and I'd wake up and, and there'd be, you know, all sorts of lovely, thoughtful little things. There was always a shirt. And, and if you remember old shirts in cellophane, you'd take them out and there'd be pins everywhere. And I'd put them in my mattress and then forget and roll over on them if I if I fell back to sleep. Because I usually got up at some daft time and my mum solemnly ordered me not to come in until, what, seven o'clock or something. But she was, and the whole day, you know, then we had presents under the tree and my dad had to eat his boiled egg before we did that. And, and then... Um, the, she'd have uh, like a big sleigh on the table with cotton wool and everyone had a, a, a the Christmas table had a little ribbon that they would pull and out would come your little present and then silver sixpences in the Christmas pudding and again that was like magic I think how does she bake it so they were all evenly distributed but of course she'd slide them in and she gave you your plate and then after Christmas tea we had tree presents so she'd have a few more presents and the doorbell would ring and she said, oh, I think he's been again. And there was a sack on the on the uh, doorstep. She just made it fantastic. And uh, so, you know, Christmas, the part of Christmas, I think for many of us is, is that delving back into memories and some really hard memories. The Christmases after my father died were really bleak and difficult and we clung to one another to get through it. Um, the Christmases when my mum had a breakdown and was very depressed, they were hard. And we all have hard Christmases at times. And I'll say a bit more about that in a little while. But I want to read you a piece that I've just written um, as part of the Sheffield collection. Uh, we just did a really great gig, me and Andy, who, who writes the music that goes under some of my poems, some of which you'll hear in a minute. Um, we did a gig at my favourite local cafe, number nine. A lot of people, maybe who listen to this, were there. 
it was sold out it was just such a lovely night um we'd worked really hard on it people really absorbed what we were talking about what we were the music we were making wilma sang a richard hawley song it was just fantastic um it was fantastic for me i hope it was for the people who were there and then wilma's band uh, the jc's did a gig at the New Barracks Tavern on Penniston Road, a little pub, a proper old Sheffield working-class pub. And that went down really well as well. And I wrote this poem, because I do a few poems in the middle of their set, for that. And I thought, oh, this would be a really good one for the old Christmas podcast. It's called Christmas Lights in Sheffield. When I was a boy, we used to get Regent Street's hand-me-downs. Our lights were last year's London glory, strung up High Street, up Fargate, along Pinston Street's covered bus stops, and twinkling down with the glinting car lights past Woolies and BHS to the foot of the moor. We were a city to be reckoned with, but even then, when the celebrity or dignity flipped the switch outside the town hall, my mate Dave's dad, the city electrician, on the other side of the ladies' toilet wall, would hear the knock and pull the real lever. Now the lights look there out from out of the loft nestling under Vulcan's feet, pulled out again, tired, unloved and lacklustre. Signs of our undoing, our goose being cooked, our being cut down to our civic wishbone, to the quick of our democratic cooperability. Drive around our streets now, and you see, from Encliff to Shirecliff's glittering windows, cornucopian luminosity. Even a whole house front, like a Disney dreamland, with a box for bystanders and drive-bys to give to a worthy Sheffield cause, or those who can afford to have a Santa Claus. Could we not get better ones? If each year the half million of us chucked in a quid, a tick box on our council tax, like when workers in steel and coal paid for a university in penny subs, left not a child behind in that dream of illumination for the working mind. Our bay windows and frontages are grand, but the great crowns over the 33 to Hemsworth, shining for us all to see like a Christmas dream, that would make us civic again. We could buck the national trend, proving that municipal's not a dirty word, it's what will help us mend. Poetry, anxiety and vulnerability. This is the Anxious Poets podcast. I feel a huge amount of gratitude for my youth Though it was hard, losing my dad, my mum having a breakdown, I, I just have such happy memories of so much of it. And that was one of them, the, uh, the Christmas lights in Sheffield. Like the poem says, we used to get our lights from London. London's lights on Regent Street would, would then be shipped up to Sheffield and we'd put them up the year after. So there, uh, my memory is just of these wonderful lights um, all through the city centre. And that particular year, they were like crowns, great big crowns gleaming and glinting and glittering in in the city nightscape. They were fantastic. 
And um, like the poem says, my mate Dave's dad turned them on every year um, because there was a sort of semaphore system going down from the town hall square down behind the ladies' toilets to where he'd pull the lever. And I just thought that was such a... It's sort of comedy moment. It's sort of Morecambe and Wise, um, very 1960s, very Sheffield. And then the, the loft under Vulcan's feet. Vulcan is on the top of our town hall. He's the god of uh, smithying and steelworking and uh, of the furnaces. Um, and, and he's such a powerful symbol of, of the city. Uh, and hardly anyone looks up anymore, but he's still up there. I've got a poem about that that one day I'll probably share on here. Um, and now our lights are a bit sad. Um, and that's not just the uh, the ramblings of an old man. They aren't as good as they used to be. And it's partly because of that being cut to down to our civic wishbone, to the quick of our democratic cooperability. Uh, that's happened in the whole of the UK. I don't know what it's like in other countries where... It, the whole safety net that came after the war, um, the whole idea of the welfare state has just been eroded. Um, and the idea that we should look after each other has been eroded with it. And and our politics is full of it at the moment. And I won't get on a soapbox about it. But you can feel it. And that, that ending is just, you know, if we all... Sheffield University was founded on the penny subscriptions of coal miners and steel workers. And on the pamphlet that they put out in 1903, I think it was, it said, so that no worker's child will be left behind. We'll all put money in so that no worker's child will be left behind. That's civic, uh, civic pride. That's municipality. That's, that's the pooling of resources to create a, a, a country, a city where everyone can thrive. And so that's what that poem ends with. Municipal's not a dirty word. It's what will help us mend. Finding new ways of being municipal. You can't even say it, municipal. Of, of being cooperative and collective. That's what will help us to mend. You know, for everyone's anxiety, everyone's mental health, this is a really tough time that we're living through. Um, as I speak, the nurses are on strike. You know, if, if someone gets ill today, the ambulance workers are on strike as well. Um, it's tough. And I, I understand why they're doing it and I support it. Um, and, uh, you know, we've had the rail strike, more rail strikes, we've got the postal strike. It reminds me of <laughs> the 70s and the winter of discontent. And it, people are right to feel discontent. Absolutely right. And now I'm on my soapbox, sorry. But, you know, it's it's how we get out of this that's the question. How we learn to care for each other more. How we learn to protect one another, to look after each other, to have each other's back. Because that that's what will help us mend. So, I suppose that's a sort of Scroogey uh, Christmas carol type of message. You know, when, when, when they try and get money out of Scrooge at the beginning, he says, are there no workhouses? Uh, is there no poor law? Uh, then let them let them apply to the to the to the usual places and leave me out of it. And of course, his great journey through the the visitation of the three ghosts—Christmas past, Christmas present, Christmas future. 
is to say, if you live like that, you are forging this chain of individuality that you'll wrap yourself in. <laughs> and, you know, in, in the book, he, he sees the chain that Jacob Marley has made and he's horrified. And Marley says, yours is much bigger. The things we do in this life, they echo into the next life. You know, and it's just such a powerful salutary tale about generosity and gratitude, kindness, those sort of underrated values, underrated human qualities, the milk of human kindness they talk about. So I suppose that's the first part of this podcast is really just these great memories we have, hopefully, of our childhood, of of Christmas past, to bring that gratitude to the present, um, to to learn to notice the most important things, and often those most important things are right on our doorstep. Um, this second piece that I want to share with you comes from my walks around Sheffield. So, in order to to uh, create the collection that I've just about finished. I did 12 walks around the city. I started at a place called Ringinglow, which looks down into the whole bowl of the city. And and I walked in. I called them traipsings. And wherever I'd finish, then I'd start at that point the next time. And it took me about three years to do all these walks. And... The twelfth walk was heading back up to Ringinglow, to where I started, and I was lagging behind. On those walks, sometimes Wilmer or Wilmer and Lara would join me, uh, or other friends. And on this particular walk, it was Wilmer and Lara, and it was cold. It was coming towards the end of the year, and we trudged a long way, and we came through a village called Door on the west side of the city, up through the village to a road called Long Line, which is perfectly named. And it's dead straight and it goes for a good mile. And they sort of were keen to finish the walk, so they were trudging on in front of me. And it was coming towards dusk and I looked up and it had been raining, but the sun had come out, the low winter sun, and there was a rainbow and it was framing the uh, the beginning of the, the long line. And it, it was one of those moments, and I think times like Christmas, that time of waiting as you're coming up to Christmas, it, Advent, it, it's all about waiting, and it sparks some consciousness in us, some... Um, need to pay attention to look up a little bit and not be caught up with all the hurly-burly that's going on around us that that i always think it's a weird thing that the whole pull of the natural world as you come towards the winter solstice is to slow down it gets darker it gets colder we should slow down we want to sleep more our bodies are craving nourishment we want to light lights and light fires. And yet the commercial uh, world 
is going faster and faster and and completely at you saying you haven't done this yet you haven't got that oh my god i mean the thing that people ask you most at the moment is are you ready for christmas you know are you all sorted um and it's like pressure it's crazy and it goes right against the natural grain so you know there are those moments like the rainbow over the road that say hold on stop be sensitive be vulnerable be open look up and experience what's in front of you and and literally this walk is right in front of me it's right in my city in my world and uh, this is the piece that i wrote with the accompaniment that andy put to it i hope you like it Birdsong on Long Line A straight trudge uphill Framed by a rainbow Mirrored in petrol spilt on the black road The aperture in the sky A summons to pay heed To this mile of evening Then there is the long swash of gleaming cars the undertone trundle of tarmac tyres, the human sign demarcating the start and a request for motorised slowness. A welcome yearning for careful drivers that seems to go utterly unheeded as I shrink into the moss-bound verge, a pleb to the passing of a royal. There is a Roman straightness to this road, a monosyllabic duality dissecting the fields bracketed by hedgerows and the generous robustness of trees. In the pause between Porsches and white vans, their parenthesis audibly bounding the green silence, I am able to hear a bird take up its garrulous singing. Now my attention has been sensitised like skin after weeks in a plaster cast. I am defenceless against the utter hopefulness of the feather-borne chant. I want to interrogate the singer's song as my body bends low to the constant incline and a bead of sweat snuggles down the stoop line of my spine like a mouse. My questions are caustic, corrosive, I want to scald this long line, stooping into an answer, into yielding meaning to this walk, to prize out an explanation. Instead, I just notice the sunlight captured in the silent panes of a house, its goldenness like an uncertain broadcast, dying in the arrival of dusk's cold. The long line is coming to a dark close. Sheep Hill Road teased the walk's long straightness and the tree framed by a sapphire backdrop to the farm where an allotment once flourished. The lack of beam poles in the overgrown patch witness to the absence of the old man I had once watched bending his own back to painstakingly dig in the new manure. 
sleek throat sounds against the early dusk, a last verse to these long lines of walking, and my heart welcomes this reckless chorus, hopefulness beyond my walk's ending. Hopefulness beyond my walk's ending. Sort of valedictory, that poem. Um, it was the twelfth walk. So it was a taking stock kind of poem. And, and a searching for meaning kind of poem. Which is good at this time of year, I think. Um, to be looking for meaning. There's a just a beautiful song by Richard Hawley. So in this part of the podcast just just want to sort of do that looking backwards thing um taking stock thinking about the year and I'd, I'd invite you to think about your year what's it been like how is it ending um where's the hopefulness beyond this year's ending and there's a song by richard hawley called as the dawn breaks and it's a reverie song, a bit like the poem I've just read. As the dawn breaks over roof slates, hope hung on every washing line. As your heart aches over life's fate, I know we never had much time for us to give, but we did. There's something in those deep blue eyes as the light creeps over the houses and the slates are darked by rain. In this morning's search for meaning, I hear a songbird's melody. I hear a songbird's melody and she's singing just for me. As the light creeps over houses and the slates are darked by rain, in this morning's search for meaning, I hear a songbird's melody. I hear a songbird's melody and she's singing just for me. Oh, she's singing just for me, a simple songbird's melody. It's a really beautiful song. Find it on Spotify. Um, but it has that search for meaning that I think this time of year is all about. And also that amazing synchronicity when you hear something like a songbird's melody and you feel, this is just for me. This is... This is a confluence of everything that's good and it's hitting me right now and they don't come very often those moments but Christmas has that bitter sweetness about it where there's difficulty and darkness and glory and beauty. So look for those moments. Hope hung on every washing line. Hopefulness beyond our year's ending. And I've been reflecting on some of the things that have happened this year. We started another podcast apart from this one, the Anxious Poets podcast, and I'm really grateful for everyone who listens to this. We've had over 6,000 downloads on this podcast now, which is, is just so heartening. Um, so thank you and we also started another one, uh, a guy called Matt Carr, my good friend, who's a 
novelist and non-fiction writer, political blogger, um, and generally good guy. And we started a, po- po- a podcast called Grim Up North, a podcast from the North about the North. And uh, you can listen to that. You, you just search for it, you'll find it. We've done seven episodes, all different aspects of the North, from the history of the North to um, why, how did it get so grim? And it's not really that grim at all. Um, looking at people like George Orwell, we interviewed George Orwell's son, Richard Orwell. That was fantastic. Um, we've looked at Northern Noir and crime fiction and had two crime writers on the podcast. Um, we looked at the miners' strike and Orgreave. Um, we looked at Acting the North. And we've just done the final one of this series called Seeing the North. Um, and that's one of my great memories of this year is doing that with Matt. And we've made a couple of trips. We did one called Angels of the North, looking at religion in the North. And we went to um, see the Lindisfarne Gospels in uh, Newcastle. They were being displayed there. And we drove under the Angel of the North and we, we stopped we interviewed people about what they thought of it. Um, it's such a powerful symbol, the Angel of the North. If you Google it, if you don't live in this country, um, it's a huge 30-foot high structure by Anthony Gormley of an angel, uh, a steel angel, rusting angel um, with huge wingspan. And, and it stretches out over the north, and it's just stunning. And people are so moved by it. And uh, it was great to talk to people. So you can hear what people said on that podcast. Um, And the last one, Seeing the North, was about painters and photographers. And we did this great trip up um, up to Ashington, which if you follow this podcast, you'll know that's where my dad came from. So Ashington was considered the biggest pit village in the world. Um... 40,000 people lived there in the 30s, most of them connected with mining. There were six mines around the village, down it was. Um, And um, there was a a particular group of men who... There's there's a thing in England, Britain, called the Workers' Education Association. And they were very active in the 1930s because of the Depression. And they basically offered educational courses to working people um, just for the sheer idea, the great idea of learning for its own sake. It wasn't so that they could get better jobs or anything like that, although it might have helped, but it was to, for the pure benefit of learning. And these, this group of miners that my dad must have been contemporary with because um, he was born in 1910 and this was in the 30s. So he probably knew some of these men. They, um, Most of them had started work at 14 years old, going down the pit. And they'd done a course on Darwin and the theory of evolution. And the WEA said to them, what do you want to do next? And they said, art appreciation. So... Um, <laughs> that they sent out this guy called Robert Lyon uh, from, I think it was from a, a, 
Armstrong College, which was connected with Durham University at the time, and he was the master of painting. Um, and there's a brilliant play by Lee Hall, who wrote Billy Elliot, called The Pitman Painters. And he recreates these scenes. Uh, and I'm just going to play you a little bit in a minute. Um, of the play when Robert Lyon, who's a rather well-spoken middle-class chap, comes to these Geordie miners to teach them about art. You did art, didn't you? I beg your pardon? You did art, didn't you? <laughs> I'm so terribly sorry, I didn't quite catch that. <laughs> you did art, do you not? Do you teach art? Oh yes, no, yes, yes. <laughs> Well, because we saw that art was not about the privileged. It wasn't about money. Or doing things a right way or a wrong way. Art was a gift. He did it for love. He only sold one painting in his entire life. And now they're going for thousands of pounds. Art doesn't really belong to anybody. Not to the artist. Or the owner. Or the people who look at it. Real art is something that's shared. Real art belongs to everyone. That accent is just takes me back to my childhood. We used to go up to Northumberland, to Ashington and Bedlington, and stay with my dad's sister. And they, they speak what they call pitmatic. And it is it's so hard to understand. I've, I, I empathise with that professor. Um, it, it's such a strong act, but it's so beautiful. And, and it also harks back to the beginning of the podcast, with Gresford, the miners' hymn. Um, th these areas were formed by the industry. But the thing that I love about the play and the whole uh, idea is is these men worked in the dark and they would come up and, and you see them, even, even in the documentary with Robson Green, that uh, if you listen to the other podcast, you'll see a link to it. When, when, when they went to do their painting, they would put their shirt and tie on and, and their jacket, and they'd be smart um, <clears throat> to wash off the grime of the pit. And then, you know, when they went below ground, they would be thinking about the things they were painting. And, and I think that's just such a wonderful thing. And the, the reverence and uh, generosity that the WAA had for ordinary people and for their dreams and their creativity and it, it must have really helped with people's mental health I mean there are all sorts of quotes in the it's in the Woodhorn Colliery Museum and we were shown around by this lovely woman called Vicky Jones who herself was like a Pittman painter she was from Ashington her dad had been a a granddad sorry had been a minor and um, she's full of knowledge and she was doing a history history degree and she wanted to uh, write about Ashington and about the the history and tradition of the place, and uh, I mean she just she just illuminated the whole place for us and was showing us quotes about what the what the men who painted those pictures that we were looking at what they said about how it changed them. So, you know, I think when we when we make those little pilgrimages up the. Uh, up the strands of our DNA to our past, where we came from, where our parents came from, 
what they taught us, what they what what inheritance we've received from them, you know, and and looking for that hopefulness beyond the year's ending. It it's it's when we when we accommodate the things that have happened to us, the difficult things, the dark things, the light things, the glorious things, that that it somehow weaves together and we take stock on this dark moment in the year and and there is the potential of new birth and i suppose that's what i want to come on last really that that when we do this journey of introversion that those miners did every day of their lives getting in that cage going underground uh there's a there's a beautiful painting in that collection of the Pittman painters, uh, and it's a dead pit pony thrown in a pit and a tub, um, a, a, a little um, open uh, tub that was on wheels that that they moved the coal about in on the rails. And Robert Laidler painted it, and she told us that, you know, he. Actually, why don't you listen to what she says, because this is lovely. So this is a Fred Laidler, and he used to take quite a lot of time with his paintings um, when he used to paint. Mm -hmm. um, about four weeks or so before he painted this, Fred lost his father, and the coroner wanted to say that it was he was a worn-out pitman. Obviously couldn't, listed the yeah, ailments yeah. and mm -hmm. things that he had died from, but it obviously stuck with Fred. Um, when Fred came in for his shift, saw the pony being taken to Bank, which is the surface, um, and obviously that connection with his father, right, he was right. basically a worn-out pit pony. So he sat down and he pretty much did it in one or two sittings. That's so moving. That's yeah. so moving. But it also goes to show how personal a lot of these yes. paintings were mm -hmm. to the miners as well. And that's well. what art's about. It's yeah. about telling a story. Yeah. The pathos in that painting the aching empathy between Fred Laidler and that pony and his dad a worn out Pittman that's the kind of beautiful reflection that I think this period in the year engenders inside us to be able to look back to collect all the heirlooms that we have inherited and then to look forward and think, how am I going to live next year? How am I going to carry all this stuff into into my new year and through the, the, the Christmas period? And how am I going to bring to birth that new part of my life? How am I going to um, allow something new to be born in me, something creative out of, out of all this? material so doing the groom up north podcast as you can hear has been a real honor and a privilege um to delve more into where i come from into the the poetry and the power of place of the place i live in um and all of this has brought all kinds of creativity to birth so i'm really grateful for that and I'm going to enter into this Christmas period with all that material that's that's percolating inside me and look for what will come to birth next. And, and I suppose I'm making an invitation to everyone listening. 
you know, to do the same thing, to, to look into yourself and see what can come to birth. A final poem that I want to read um, comes from, you, you'll have heard on this podcast, my sort of endless reflection about Francis of Assisi. So we're going right back in time um, to the 1100s. Um, and Francis had that amazing ability to go inside of himself. I've, I've been up to the Kacheri. They were literally the prison caves above Assisi where prisoners were put. But by Francis's time, they were derelict. And he would go up there and live in those caves and pray and go right into himself. And he would bring to birth all kinds of things. And there's a legend that he went to a, a town called Greccio at Christmas. And he'd been doing that, that introversion, that going inside of himself. And um, he was so taken with the idea of Christmas, with the idea of this new birth. You know, for millennia, we have associated in the Northern Hemisphere this period with some kind of birth, um, rebirth. And it's no surprise that the Christian tradition picked this time of year for the birth of Jesus. And Francis was utterly moved by the idea that God would, would enter the world. In the Christian tradition, it says that God enters the world through the medium, through the life of a tiny baby. The, it's called the incarnation, the becoming flesh, the becoming a body, God becoming a body. And whatever we believe or don't believe, it's a very powerful idea that, that somehow if you want to find meaning, then look down, don't look up. Look at the vulnerable, look at the, the, the poor, look at the uh, overlooked, because that's where you may well find it. And that's what Francis, his whole life experience, it wasn't something in his head, it was something that he did. He looked down, and in looking down, he found the answer to all his questions. He'd been a rich young man looking up, trying to move up, trying to be something, uh, and then he discovered that he was looking in the wrong place. So this particular year, he created a tableau with human beings and animals of, of the crib scene that we see every year. You know, Joseph and Mary and the baby Jesus and, and the animals, the, the, the cattle and the donkey and the shepherds. And he met at this place called Greccio, he created this, this whole tableau and encouraged people to look at it and said, look, look, this is, this is the reality of, of revelation of new birth. Um, apparently one witness among the crowd reported that Francis included a carved doll which seemed to be wakened from sleep when the Blessed Father embraced him in both arms. So the legend is that this, this carved figure suddenly became a real baby in the arms of St Francis. Um, so here's the piece, Francis and the crib at Greccio. He led them up the stony path at dusk on Christmas Eve. 
He asked them to bring light, so, with sticks dipped in pitch and all manner of stubby candles, they followed him to the cave. Gathering to a luminescence in that rocky aperture, his Bethlehem, earthen womb, a veiled threshold to heaven, he had found a donkey, cross-backed, and a cow, udder full and calf-needy, and with straw he coaxed them to settle into sleep. And for the pallet of golden forage, his hands, long-fingered and dexterous, had carved a babe to incarnate in wood the long-awaited one. John of Greccio, whose cave it was, witnessed the tears of Francis, flowing in remembrance of that uncertain birth under imperial servitude. And John was sure the carven fingers, uncurled, chiselled eyes blinked back the smoky lights to see once more wonder in the eyes of villains to liege lords. Francis finally spoke of the terrifying helplessness that was undertaken to show that each of us, womb-born, is a doorway to divinity. And each saw the ark of heaven stooping into the ordinary and the commonplace, revealing each illuminated face as God again and again and again, shouldering human form. He lifted the sleeping child who stirred miraculously, cribbed in the tender love of one who beheld what thrones and dominations occlude, what those who gaze upward never see. He lifted the sleeping child who stirred miraculously, cribbed in the tender love of one who beheld what thrones and dominations occlude, what those whose gaze who gaze upward never see. what those who gaze at would never see. So I hope and wish you all a happy solstice, festive time, Christmas, and I hope that somehow this period, this solstice period, helps you to bring to birth that which the year has kindled that which has been forming in the womb of your soul and that could be born in 2023. Go well and hopefully we'll speak together again soon in 2023. I'm the Anxious Poet, I'm Adrian Scott and I'm wishing you happy Christmas and a blessed, fruitful, productive, generous kind, cooperative, collective New Year. Poetry, Anxiety and Vulnerability This is the Anxious Poets Podcast.